0: crispus niggas, nigga 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 why do you
1: Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by apprentices of the First Voice Media Apprenticeship Program here at KPFA. This is another edition of Montage, and we will be holding a magnifying glass on American racism. We're your hosts tonight. I'm Ron Thompson. And I'm Dennis Ruth, Jr. Tonight, this show is entitled White Civilizes and black man's burden. We will explore why, in a lot of ways, black lives don't matter in this country, proven through the courses of institutional and systematic racism. That systemic racism we hope to explain to you a little bit more tonight. Now, I also, before we really get going, I want you to get a pencil and a piece of paper and write this number down. The number is 1-800-439-5732. You know that we're in our fun drive, and we want to salivate you to reach in your pocket and help us out. That's 1-800-439-5732, or one 800 hey one 800 hey So, tonight... We're going to take a look at a time when the political parties were opposite of what they are today and how the unspoken yet ubiquitous century-old legislation called Black Codes still are in effect today and affecting black lives. And we'll also see how they empower white supremacy through the Jim Crow laws.
2: Also, as full-circuit enters this fun drive, we offer you Professor Michelle Alexander's the New Jim Crow, a book that brings the black codes and Jim Crow laws up to today's present-day mass incarceration crisis.
1: That's, again, going, that's going to be something, isn't it?
2: That's uh, going yes. to really be something. Yes, this is yes. important. This is a very important need-to-know show. Yes. So again, we are your hosts. I'm Ron, Ron Thompson. And I'm Dennis Roos Jr. Please stay tuned with us.
1: Circle here on KPFA 94.1. And in case you just tuned in, we are talking about Jim Crow laws and black codes, and we just got that set up with a little bit of Underdog from Sly and the Family Stone. And still to this day, there's some very relevant lyrics in what he's saying in that song. Now, our show tonight is on, again, why the black race, more specifically the black man, is under such relentless character assassination and full-on high-pressure attack. How does this level of white supremacy construct the height and breadth of prejudice and bigotry heaped upon the bodies and psyche of black people in this country? Through various professors and scholars, we examine how black codes and Jim Crow's laws gave the most looked down upon and least thought of white person by other whites a position of elevation and class over any black person. Later, we'll hear from Michelle Alexander on her new
2: book, The New Jim Crow, and see how these old black codes are still relevant today.
0: Let's take a listen. Louisiana, Texas, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Florida passed laws that virtually prohibited freedmen from any work except as field hands. The laws were called Black Codes. The aim was slavery without the chain black codes were laws passed to control and restrict and constrain the lives of the freed people essentially rendering them bondsmen again under law some states made it illegal for freedmen to handle weapons and restricted them from buying or renting land black children could be seized from poor families and forced to work in the fields If a black man had no job, he could be jailed
3: and auctioned to a planter for his labor. They make a travesty of the freedom that African Americans have acquired. They are so far from any notion of fairness or freedom that even northerners who are not egalitarians say these laws are unacceptable. And so, northern republicans are faced with a dilemma. They don't want to have a big fight with the president. But to accept the idea that Johnson's policy is a success and accept the black codes, they feel means giving up the victory in the Civil War.
0: To Louisiana's black veterans, one freedman offered this advice. I would say to every colored soldier, bring your gun home. Moderate Republicans are forced into the radical camp because they had to oppose Andrew Johnson. Johnson's plan of reconstruction was so lenient, in utter contempt of black liberty, that was simply unacceptable. A united Republican Party overrode Johnson's veto. America had its first Civil Rights Act. But many in Congress argued that the act was not enough, that safeguarding civil rights required changes to the Constitution itself.
3: Republican leaders proposed a new amendment. The 14th Amendment becomes the crux of the political battle in 1866. And basically, what they put into the Constitution is a new definition of American nationality and citizenship. Making African Americans for the first time full citizens of the United States. This is the origin of the concept of civil rights in American society. Rights which obtain to you as a citizen which cannot be rescinded because of your race.
0: This is a titanic debate about just what the authority of the federal government is going to be. There were plenty of Americans who argued the federal government had no right to declare
3: black people citizens. The Democrats are constantly putting forward racist arguments. You are eradicating a line between black and white which has existed forever. What's at stake here really is the definition of freedom. If a person can be discriminated against in every walk of life because of their race, has slavery really been abolished?
0: Congress overwhelmingly passed the 14th Amendment, but it had to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. denounced the amendment and accused the Republicans of treason.
3: Johnson is opposed to an expansion of federal power. For him, constitutional authority resides at the state level, not at the national level. And Johnson believes that the Republicans are engaged in an enormous usurpation of state authority.
0: Were
1: drawn. This clip from a PBS documentary called Reconstruction, taught by historian David Blythe of Yale University, speaking on the Black Codes, that little short clip really doesn't let us into the inner workings of the Congress and the states on how they began to legislate, it it begins to break down just what the people did who lost their slaves, because they were pretty pissed off at that time. And rightly so, uh, I guess to them, in terms of the way that then-President Johnson, Andrew Johnson, thought since he took over after Lincoln uh, was assassinated, After perhaps the greatest battle this country has ever experienced, the Civil War had ended, and Reconstruction was in full effect across this country. At least from the North, there was further changing towards humanity to the Darker Brother. But at the same time, the white citizens' councils began to crank out more hatred and segregation in their Jim Crow laws and in their newspapers. Now we're going to listen to a clip by Keith Hughes, who will help us to understand a little bit about the Jim Crow laws and the effects they had on black folks. So let's
4: talk- So let's talk a little bit about the origin of the word Jim Crow before we go into kind of the concept of de jure and de facto segregation. Jump Jim Crow was an old song and dance routine that originated in 1828, which was written by a white comedian by the name of T.D. Daddy Rice, who would perform in blackface, basically to make fun of slaves. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about I jump Jim Crow. The term Jim itself is short for Jim. Jimmy, like I'm going to jimmy a lock, and that was a crowbar. So a crowbar in the 1800s was sometimes called a jim or a Jimmy, and then of course crow itself was used as a term for blacks as early as the 1700s. In terms of jump Jim Crow, farmers used to feed their crows corn-soaked whiskey. Then the crows would get drunk and kind of dance around, not being able to fly, as the farmers, you know, kind of beat the crows to death. So there's multiple meanings behind the term Jim Crow. They all refer in a negative connotation to slaves and to freedmen, to blacks. And now we're going to turn that term, Jim Crow, into a system of racial oppression. So Jim Crow laws, and that would be segregation day jury meaning that by jurisdiction, local and state ordinance, and we're also going to talk about federal ordinances, which mandate by law segregation. Now, early on, right after the Civil War, and that's where we're going to start in 1865, we still had those southern governments that were be controlled by kind of Confederate forces. So those southern, white, democratic-dominated legislatures would pass something called Black Codes right after the Civil War that severely limited the rights of these new freedmen. but That's going to change during Reconstruction because starting in 1867, the Republican dominated Congress is going to basically mandate through the enforcement of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, the military occupation of the South. This is the period of history from basically 1867 to 1877, about a decade, called Reconstruction. And during Reconstruction, the Black Codes were eliminated, and for the most part, African Americans were allowed to vote. And you did have African Americans that were elected to high office. You had governors, uh, there was a African American senator, there were African American state legislators. So, it was kind of working, but of course, it's all being held together by military occupation. And then there was an incident in Louisiana in 1873 called the Colfax Massacre. And this is really kind of the uh, Southern Democratic forces trying to uh, coalesce around groups in order to take back what they see as their rightful place as leaders of these Southern governments. And in Louisiana, at the Colfax Massacre in 1873, there was a group called the White League. And this White League, unlike the Klan, which was kind of a terrorist under the ground organization, the White Leagues and the Red Shirts, um, groups throughout the South, were open about their, you know, opposition to African-American rights and their wanting of power. So at Colfax, this White League basically attacked a courthouse that was being held by Republican forces. And we basically have a mini civil war at Colfax. We ended up having about 150 African-Americans that were murdered, maybe more. We're not really sure about mass graves and people that were thrown into the river and such. But that culminated in a federal trial with the conviction of some of those people who did that based on the 1870 Enforcement Act saying that, you know, Congress is going to have the ability to prosecute people that are violating the rights of freedmen. In 1876, the Supreme Court comes out with a decision called United States versus Krushchenk, where they basically kind of take the teeth out of the Enforcement Act by saying that because this White League was not a government group but a private organization, the Enforcement Act didn't hold. So that's kind of a breakdown of federal control over... You know, the the southern governments and the the rise of what's going to become Jim Crow. The sellout is going to be the end of military occupation in the South by Reconstruction forces, that they're going to be able to own their governments again. And this is really the beginning of the birth of Jim Crow and Segregation Day Jury down South. Now, Congress wasn't done in the 1870s. They passed something called the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was basically um, kind of a reclaim to the 14th Amendment in terms of public accommodations, that there would be no segregation in places of public accommodations, like restaurants and hotels and trains and all of that kind of jazz. But that's going to be torn apart in 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson. Now, Plessy versus Ferguson isn't based on schools, even though Brown versus Board of Ed is going Going to overturn it. It's really based on the concept of segregation by legislation. And in Louisiana, um, it was always illegal for blacks and whites to ride on the same car. But the separate car act of Louisiana kind of added coloreds to the mix. They had a classification for mixed races. And if you were one-eighth of African ancestry, you were considered colored and you couldn't ride on the train. So this was an organized effort by the black and colored community to fight this new law. And Homer Plessy, who was one eighth black, he was very of light complexion, kind of walked onto the train one day and he had to announce to the steward of the train his racial heritage because nobody could tell just by looking at him. Then he proceeded to sit down and get arrested kind of in the spirit of Rosa Parks, which launched the court case Plessy v versus Ferguson, where the court is going to end up saying separate is equal that segregational laws are constitutional because they are still giving African Americans um, a seat at the table, it's just a separate table and it's an equal table. And of course we all know that not to be true. So Jim Crow itself in terms of segregation de jury, is going to be the laws that are passed which are gonna segregate African Americans from whites. So following Plessy versus Ferguson, the South kind of has legislative and, and judicial authority to segregate and they're gonna do that rapidly by passing laws Jim Crow laws which are going to segregate not only the public schools but libraries and hospitals and transportation and all of that jazz. The other big huge segregation de jure piece is going to be voting restrictions. And of course we could also talk about the effect in terms of cultural social psychological effect on African Americans. I don't even want to talk about all of the lost opportunity, all of the poets we didn't get to read, all of the scientific inventions that didn't get invented, all of the the books that were written all of the songs that were never heard because of course Jim Crow is putting a kibosh on that because it's literally putting a, a plug in the in the in the hose of opportunity
1: well that sheds a little light on it that sheds a little light on everything that has been happening in this country to black people that sheds the light on, well, you're just ignorant, you, 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 you don't have any intelligence, you can't go to school, you can't, if you knock down everything that they were doing, if you did like Penelope did with her tapestry while she was waiting for Ulysses to come home, <laughs> if you uncrochet the tapestry, then of course... You know, they're on a slippery slope all the time. Slippery slope. If everything that you do is against, then I don't see the supremacy. I don't see where you've judged yourself, where you've gauged yourself, because you've had your foot on somebody else's neck all the time. You've undone everything they were trying to do. So... Uh, This is where I say welcome back to Full Circle. (laughs) I just jumped right in with that. And, of course, this is KPFA, 94.1 FM in Berkeley. And you were just listening to Mr. Keith Hughes, also known as Hip Hughes, who teaches us, um, and a lot of other people, U.S. history and government, for the Graduate School of Education at the University of Buffalo in New York. And he was giving his explanation of how the Jim Crow laws really, really got started and how they negate the rights that freed African-American people, thought they had won. That's an ugly situation. Definitely. What say you on some of those things there, sir? Well, listening
2: to exactly uh, the Jim Crow laws, it more sounds like just like slavery, only by another name. So even though we were emancipated, quote, unquote, they found another way
1: to put us right back where we were. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Where were you going to go? You're emancipated, you're freed, but they didn't pay you. So you work from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. You didn't get a dime, and the same rags and little soul food you had when you were freed is what you took with you going where? My, my, my. We now,
2: want, we, we would like to. Back to the pitching guys. We would. We want to remind you all tonight that we're in the middle of our summer fundraiser, and just a moment, we were here a few clips of Michelle Alexander speaking on her book, The New Jim Crow Mass Incorporation in the Age of Colorblindness. This book shows us how black codes and Jim Crow laws are still with us today.
1: So if you are able to donate at this time, and I hope you are, please call us now. That number is one 800 439 5732. Again, that's 1-800-439-5732. And you can also donate securely online at kpfa.org. And for a donation of $25, you can help out. And for $60, you can become a member. So please, reach in your pocket and do something to help us. Now this book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is a very good book. You'll want to get this book. Or you can also get her speech that she gave on this topic. And she gave this at the historical Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York. So in just a moment, you're going to hear both of them. Uh, You're going to hear, we've got three or four clips for you about her, what she's talking about in terms of her book, in terms of Jim Crow, and, yes, she has a book. Uh, so let's turn to that clip now. Remember, uh, that's one 800 Remember, ladies and gentlemen, in the words of
2: Dr. Martin Luther King, there's nothing more tra- tragic than to sleep through a revolution. So if you can help, please do so. You can get the speech given by the historic at the historic Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York, New York, in 2012 for a donation of $75. Or you can get the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass incarceration,
1: Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color And I want to thank all the few who've already called in and donated and please keep it up. Now let's
2: go to the first excerpt from Michelle Alexander. Here she talks about the link between slavery of the past and mass incarceration.
5: Now, I acknowledge in the introduction to my book that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. There was a time when I resisted strenuously comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery or mass incarceration and Jim Crow, believing that people who made those kinds of claims and comparisons were engaging in exaggerations, distortions, and hyperbole. In fact, I thought people who made those kinds of claims were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. Now if you're like I was more than a decade ago and tempted to believe that these kinds of comparisons and analogies are exaggerations or distortions. Consider this. There are more African-American adults under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men have been stripped of the right to vote disenfranchised, then in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, black folks were kept from the polls by poll taxes and literacy tests. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. A black child born today has less of a chance of being raised by both parents than a black child born during slavery. Eighty percent of all African American children can now expect to spend at least a significant part of their childhood years living apart from their fathers. This is due in large part to the mass incarceration of black men. And contrary to the image frequently presented in the media of black men being a bunch of deadbeat dads who don't care about their children, the research shows that black men actually do a better job of maintaining contact with their children following a separation due to imprisonment or divorce or any other factor than men of any other racial or ethnic group. But no other racial or ethnic group faces such an extraordinary challenge in playing the role of a traditional father in our society today. That's not to say black men couldn't do better, but white men could do better as fathers. Latinos, Asian men could do better as fathers. Black men do a better job at trying than men of any other race. But trying is difficult when you are locked behind bars, when you're jobless or barred by law from residing in the same home as your children and your spouse. Now this phenomenon of black men kept from their families and their children, their loved ones, doesn't affect some small segment of the black community as we know. To the contrary, in major urban areas, more than half of working-age African-American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In fact, in the Chicago area, if you take into account prisoners No, if you actually count them as people you know, prisoners are typically excluded from unemployment statistics, poverty statistics, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working age African American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. It was recently reported in a book just published by Ernest Drucker called A Plague of Prisons that in Washington DC that figure has now surpassed 90%. These men are part of a growing under not class, caste. A group of people, defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I'm fairly certain that there's at least one person out there who's thinking, what is she talking about? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, they wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration. Namely, that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's not true. Over the last 30 years, our prison population has exploded, has quintupled. We've gone from a rate of incarceration, we've gone from about 300,000 people behind bars in the mid-1970s to over 2 million today. We now, as a nation, have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of highly repressive regimes like Russia, or China, and Iran. But again, this explosion in imprisonment is not due to crime rates. Over the past few decades, crime rates have fluctuated, have gone up, have gone down. Today, as bad as crime rates are in many parts of the country, crime rates are actually at historical lows. But incarceration rates have soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime was going up or down in any given community or the nation as a whole.
1: This is Montage on Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. And you just heard Michelle Alexander speaking on the topics covered in her book, The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness. The clip covered some starting statistics. There are more black men in prison
2: or jail, or on parole or probation at this time that were enslaved back in 1850. I would like to say that's really hard to believe, but
1: it's not so hard to believe. It's not. It's not. And she also pointed out that more black men in 2004 were stripped of their right to vote and disenfranchised than back in 1870. Now, how is this possible? (laughs) Carefully orchestrated planning. That's how it's possible. If this speech interests you and you're stunned by the horrific stats and numbers, you can call and support the station and get that book. Get this CD that we're bringing to you by Michelle Alexander.
2: The station is KPFA. Give us a call. 1-800-HEY-KPFA or 1-800-439-5732. You can also, do- you can also donate securely, on- securely online at kpfa.org. For a donation of $100, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. For, For a donation of $75, The New Jim Crow Speech at Abyssinian Baptist Church, New York
1: City. Okay, now we've got uh, another couple of clips to play for you, so we're going to get to that in just a moment. But again, get to the phone. This is your opportunity. Get to the phone. Now, you know, what is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in America? You know what it is. What is really one, the, what has really hurt black people in America? You know what it is, these Jim Crow laws. Let's listen to Michelle.
5: Simply reducing crime rates will not end mass incarceration. Let me repeat that. Simply reducing crime rates will not end mass incarceration. Why? Because crime rates have not been driving the explosion of our prison system. So what has, if not crime and crime rates? Well, it turns out that the activists who post that sign on the telephone pole were right. The war on drugs and the Get Tough movement. The wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. What has changed dramatically is not so much crime, but what gets defined as crime and how we respond to it. And nothing has contributed more to this harsh response than the war on drugs. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, accounted for two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than 1,000 percent since the drug war began. To get a sense of how large a contribution the war on drugs has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. That's what the research shows. But the drug war, not by accident, has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color. Even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. Or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who's a drug dealer. Now if you picture a drug dealer in your mind, you're probably picturing some black kid standing the street corner with his pants sagging. Plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood. But it happens everywhere else in America as well. A white kid living in rural Kansas doesn't drive to the hood to get his marijuana or his meth or his cocaine. No, he gets it most likely from someone of his own race down the road. In fact, where significant differences in the survey data appear, it frequently suggests that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails which are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. In some states 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race African-American. Now I find that Many people, when they see the data, they're stunned. And they say, yeah, that's awful. Those racial disparities, it's astounding. But still, we need to be waging a drug war in those ghetto communities because that's where the violent offenders can be found. That's where the drug kingpins can be found. They say it makes sense to wage the drug war in the ghetto communities because we have to get tough with them. That's where the violence is. Indeed, in my experience, most people seem to imagine that the war on drugs was declared in response to the emergence of crack cocaine and the related violence. And for a while, I I believed that, too. But it's not true. It's not the case. President Ronald Reagan declared the current drug war in 1982 at a time when drug crime was on the decline not on the rise. He declared the drug war before, not after, crack became a media sensation and was ravaging inner city communities. President Richard Nixon was the first to coin the term a war on drugs. But it was President Ronald Reagan who turned that rhetorical war into a literal one. And at the time he declared his drug war, drug crime was actually on the decline and less than 3% of the American population identified drugs as the nation's most pressing concern. So why declare a drug war at a time when drug crime is declining and the American population isn't much concerned about drugs? Well, the answer is that from the outset, the drug war had relatively little to do with genuine concern about drug addiction or drug abuse, and nearly everything to do with politics, racial politics. Numerous historians and political scientists have now documented that the war on drugs was part of a grand Republican Party strategy known as the Southern strategy.
1: I like the way she breaks that down. And if you like the way she breaks that down, Michelle's book, is $100, the new Jim Crow. You can have that for a don- donation of $100. And Michelle Alexander's CD from the Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York is $75. You can have the combo and of the book and the CD for uh, 150 All you have to do is call 1-800-439-5732. That's one 800 hey h e y k p f a. Or you can donate online at www.kpfa.org, and really help us out. We're trying to raise a thousand dollars at this point, and you can really help us. So don't forget. And we'd also like to say uh, thank you to Highwire Coffee Roasters and Stella Nona's Restaurant, and also the Renaissance Specialty Cakes and Desserts for their donation to help out the people in the phone room. Dennis, we have another clip coming up, don't we?
2: Uh, Yes, we do. We're going to add to the uh, previous powerful speech, and let's get right into it.
5: A couple years after the drug war was announced, crack cocaine began to ravage inner city communities. And the Reagan administration seized on this development with glee, actually hiring staff whose job it was to feed to the media stories of inner-city crack babies and crack deals and the so-called crack whores and crack-related violence. Their goal was to make crack a media sensation in the hopes that it would bolster public support for a drug war they had already declared and persuade Congress to devote millions more dollars to waging it. And the plan worked like a charm, almost overnight. Our television sets were saturated with images of crack babies, crack dealers, the so-called crack whores. And a wave of punitiveness swept over the United States, and soon Congress was passing harsh mandatory minimums for possession of small amounts of crack cocaine and other drugs, sentences harsher than murderers receive in some other Western democracies. And soon, Democrats began competing with Republicans to prove they could be even tougher on them than their Republican counterparts. And so it was President Bill Clinton who escalated the drug war far beyond what his Republican predecessors even dreamed possible. And it was President Clinton that championed laws denying federal financial aid to drug offenders for college. It was President Clinton who championed laws banning people with criminal convictions from access to public housing so that people wouldn't have housing upon release from prison. It was the Clinton administration that championed laws denying even food stamps under federal law to people who were once caught with drugs. To a large extent, the basic architecture of this new caste system was championed by a democratic administration desperate to win back the so-called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the civil rights movement. Still, in my experience, many people who are familiar with this history defend the drug war and mass incarceration nonetheless. They say, but what about all those drug kinpins? And what about the violence in our communities? Don't we need this war to deal with them? And it is true, we need an aggressive approach to dealing with the violence that plagues our communities. But let's be clear, this drug war has never been aimed at rooting out the drug kingpins or the most violent offenders. Never has. Never has. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer volume of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. State and local law enforcement agencies are rewarded in cash by the millions for the sheer numbers of people swept in to the system for drug offenses. This helps to explain why law enforcement so often goes out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit. Stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible, pulling as many vehicles as possible over in a search for drugs. But, of course, they don't do that so much in middle-class white neighborhoods. They don't sweep college campuses and universities for drugs, though plenty can be found there, I can assure you. No. These tactics are applied only in poor communities of color, because that's where they can get away with it and still get paid. And the results are predictable people of color have been rounded up in mass for relatively minor nonviolent drug offenses. In 2005, for example, 4 out of 5 drug a- drug arrests were for simple possession, only 1 out of 5 for sales. Most people in state prison for drug offenses have no history of violence or significant selling activity. And in fact, in the 1990s, the Clinton years, period of the greatest escalation of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession, a drug who's now been shown to be less harmful, less addictive than alcohol or tobacco, and at least, if not more prevalent, in middle class white communities and on college campuses as it is in the hood. But by waging the drug war exclusively in the hood, We've managed to create a vast new racial undercast in an astonishingly short period of time. Millions of people are now saddled with criminal records and legally denied the very rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement.
1: Boy, powerful. Tonight we've been talking about the history of systemic oppression of the black People in this country, a suppression of freedom, of rights, and of human dignity. And what you've just been listening to is Michelle Alexander speaking on the topic of her best-selling book, The New Jim Crow. For a donation of $75, you can get this speech by Michelle Alexander, and you can learn about the history of the systemic oppression brought to you by... The powers that be to black people through the black codes and Jim Crow laws and mass incarceration.
2: Or for $100, you can get the book she's talking about, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. You could even get them both for a donation of $150. Whether you're a kid in school, a lifelong learner, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, understanding Jim Crow should be a requirement not only for your life, but for those who you care for.
1: So let's go ahead, Ron. Well, you know, uh, what I want to focus on right now is the new Jim Crow is a grand wake-up call in the midst of a long slumber of indifference to, p- to the poor and vulnerable. Now, those are the words of Cornel West, A powerful analysis of why and how mass incarceration is happening in America. The new Jim Crow should be required reading for anyone working for real change in the criminal justice system, says Ronald E. Hampton, executive director for National Black Police Association. And... Michelle Alexander's book offers a timely and original framework for understanding mass incarceration. It's roots to Yes, it's roots to Jim Crow and our modern caste system and what must be done to eliminate it. This book is a call to action. Yes it is, says Benjamin Todd He's the president of and CEO of the NAACP, and we have a comment uh, right now by our consultant, Ms. Joy Moore, who's been in the phone room.
6: So first of all, I want to thank everybody who has pledged to KPFA, but we especially need your support right now. Michelle Alexander and the work that we're presenting from her today is so crucial and relevant to the times that we need to see your support right now to let us know that this is the kind of thing we should be working on, we should be airing, (coughs) excuse me, we should be discussing. (coughs) I'm so excited, I'm coughing, because... I love the apprenticeship program. I love Full Circle. And I know there are people out there who love it, too. We want you to call us right now, 1-800-439-5732. We have live people in there on the phone waiting for your call. Please call us. Give us $25, $50, $100, whatever you can afford. You can spread it out over a year. Put it on your credit card, your debit card, your Visa card, whatever card you got. We will take it. We need your support. 1-800-439-5732. These gentlemen are wonderful. They got wonderful, deep, resonant voices, but their energy was low, and I want to pick it up for them. Prove to them. All you got to do is put it out there, and it'll come back. There's past apprentices out there. There are people who are friends of this show. Folks who have relatives who went through this program, if you've ever heard anything on KPFA that you love, anything that made you think, call us right now, 1-800-439-5732 and say, hey, KPFA, this is my station and I want to support it. I love this show. I love the work of the apprentices. I love Ron and I love Dennis and I love the uh, work that we presented today. Get the copy of the book, The New Jim Crow, which is old, 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 and we're still dealing with it. And all and or the CD by Michelle. So it's a hundred dollars for the book, seventy-five for the CD. You can get them both for hundred fifty. If you heard it before, pass it on to someone else. It's so deep. I know even if you have heard it before, there are things in there you need to rediscover. This conversation needs to go on and on and on and on, and we need your help to make sure that happens. 1-800-439-5732, or you can go online at kpfa.org. Give us what you can. Give us anything, $10, $5, $25. It helps show the station that the work we do on Full Circle is valuable, important, and appreciated by you. Call us right now, please. 1-800-439-5732.
1: That is how you do it. That is the consultant. That's why she's the consultant, Miss Joy Moore, because she's not as laid back as we are. <laughs> like like laid a back, nice back is one shot. word for it. And, and uh, that's how you do it. Uh, it. You know, I found it difficult, Joy, to reach that point because this hits so. This hits so home to me. It is
6: a hard subject.
1: I I mean, I have been stopped so much. I have been, I've lost so many jobs. I've been uh, uh, off of so many uh, uh, interviews. I've been out of this and that because of this type of thing. I remember seeing, giving my application to a receptionist and seeing her get the little red pencil and put that little red check mark in the corner.
6: There are horrible things out there, um, huh. Ron, that have been going on for, for all of us for centuries. What's different now is that people are paying attention. Yes, we also have. We had to have. Video proof yes. before our word and our existence was not enough. Yes, if This is a video society we live in. They yes. see it on TV. It must be real. I don't right. care if it's right. reality TV or not. It's real. So we need to continue to keep people's ear turned to the ground on this. We still need people to support what we're doing. We need people to say Black Lives Matter And KPFA is one of the places where you will hear that. So you need to support us now. If you're listening to us now, go to the phone. Give us what you can. Stretch it out over a year. It's $12 a a month for a $60 pledge. I'm sorry, $5 a month for a $60 pledge. 1-800-439-5732. If you're driving, call us back. Someone will answer the phone. If you are by a computer, go online, kpfa.org. Give us your um, a check or cash. You can mail it in as well. one eight hundred four three nine five seven three two. 439 5732
1: And let us thank right now Ms. Linda Minor for her donation, Mr. Robert Moretti, Moretti and uh, Mr. Frank Sterling. And just all of y'all, keep the phones going. I thank really you appreciate it. Thank you so much it. for yes. that. See, yes. you
6: guys, see, yes. this all it takes. Ask. Yes. Ask people. <laughs> okay. Ask them. We you need your help. Yes. Say yes. that. Go for it. Thank you for your work, you guys. You know, I'm not just playing with you, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, no. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Love it. Love you, too. Now, see, Joy just came in and brought us to the end of the show.
6: All right. Tonight's
1: show. And she let us know that you are ringing the phone, so we like that. Keep ringing them. Keep calling. Check out our webpage at kpfa.apprentice.org or kpfaapprentice.org where you can listen to our past shows and see photos of some of our guests. And we want to do a special thanks to the production team and the technical team. Our executive producer is Mrs. Joy. Uh, Our uh, production assistant is... J.C. Howard and I saw David in there, and Josiah's our board op, and that was Miss Joy Moore, who was our production. Consultant and our pitch, pitch, pitch person, and that was Free Willing Franklin Sterling, who was our technical director, and our music tonight was uh, Curtis Mayfield. Don't worry, there's a hell below. We're all going to go and Slash stone. Shots. This is Forty One Shots by they Bruce Springsteen.
4: Cross this bloody river. The side.
0: 41 shots cut through the night. You're kneeling over his body in the vestibule, and
6: praying for his life.
1: Well, is it a gun?
4: ready for school She says on these streets Charles. You've got to understand
0: the rules If an officer
1: stops The you, world has consumed the riches of wealth old created old. off the back of black Africans
0: and stolen
1: Africans from Africa inside along with those riches, since the so-called safaris into darkest Africa, plundering and pillaging and raping the continent, making it the dollar store of the world. That's Bruce Springsteen you're listening to talking about American skin. Once again, I've been your host, Ron Thompson. With and huh? me is... Dennis Roos Jr. Yes. And thanks again to Josiah the Controls and everyone else. Let me know how you think. Let me know what you feel. Give me, uh, give me a, 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 a note at ronthompson.g4d at gmail.com.